Daniel was one of the prophets in Old Covenant Israel. He was one of the two foremost prophets during the exile. Ezekiel was the other one. Uh, Daniel lived in exile for the totality of his life, and he was one of the most useful of the Old Testament prophets. Um, the book is difficult to interpret because it is made up of several different literary genres. There is historical narrative, there is poetic prophecy, there is apocalyptic symbolism. That makes it a very challenging book. It's also written at the beginning and toward the end in Hebrew, and in between it is written in Aramaic. It's a very difficult book to interpret because of that, and there are challenges, especially after chapter 5, especially as we get into the apocalyptic symbols. I had a friend tell me, oh, that's great. You're going to preach Daniel. You're going to quit after chapter 5. I said, no, I'm going to give our new assistant some of that stuff, and we're going to find out real quick what his level of competency is. Um, but I am, I'm excited about preaching through this book through the summer. I think it's going to be edifying for us, and I think it's going to be a timely book for us. One of the things that we often fail to do, and we'll see a little of this tonight, is we often fail to see how the message of a book from a culture we are so far away from and a setting that is so different than our circumstances can have such an important message for us today. And yet I think you're going to see that Daniel certainly has a great deal for us um, to consider today, and it would help me to have my notes. Y'all, I'm a mess tonight. I'm sorry. Um, but we are looking at Daniel chapter 1. If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn there and read along with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days, 
Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all them there was none found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the greatest hindrances that we have to faithfulness and fruitfulness in our Christian lives is that, and and we may not even be aware that we do this, but most of us, if not all of us, think if I can just adjust my situation, if I can just control my situations, if I can just have better circumstances in life, I'll be faithful and fruitful. I didn't like the hardship I was in growing up. If I could just have something different, I'll be faithful and fruitful. And all of us hate change. Change is inevitable, but we don't like it when it comes. And we are overwhelmed by change. We allow ourselves to grow anxious because of change. We want to control our circumstances and we don't want change. And one of the interesting things is that the Bible constantly, constantly dispels the notion that your faithfulness and your fruitfulness, my faithfulness and my fruitfulness is in any way whatsoever affected by our circumstances and our lack of control over them or over change or no change in our lives. It's helpful because I see a lot of Christians who function, if I can just control the outcome of this circumstance, I'll be happy. And they're some of the most miserable people I have ever met. They don't even know how miserable they are. They're not faithful and they're not fruitful because they're constantly worried about controlling circumstances and keeping change from happening. And yet when we come to the book of Daniel, one of the interesting things is here are, here's the focus on these, these four young teenagers from the tribe of Judah, they have been uprooted from everything that they have ever known. They have been carried from the land they knew, from the worship practices, from the food, from the culture, from everything they were comfortable in. And they have been put in the most challenging circumstance in a foreign land. Everything has changed for them. They have to learn new languages. They have to eat new foods. Everything is different. Their circumstances are hard. Their change is coming constantly constantly living in a state of change. And yet in the midst of that, this book opens with a focus on how Daniel and his friends remain faithful to God and become fruitful in a foreign land. Absolutely amazing. While the rest of the nation isn't faithful and fruitful, these four young men are faithful and fruitful because they've learned the secret. 
They've learned that it's not controlling their circumstances, complaining about what they don't like, and if we could just change it, I'll be faithful and fruitful. And it's not about stopping change. It's about knowing certain things. Um, before we come to consider what those things are, I just want to note that uh, the book of Daniel was written by a believer who functioned as a political state official uh, in the uh, most powerful empire in the world at that time. And he is writing this book from that aspect. He is serving in this foreign state as a foreign official, and he is writing about God's purposes for the nations, even in putting Israel into captivity there. Now, this, the Babylonian captivity was part of Nebuchadnezzar's earliest conquering excursions to the West. He basically dominated every country from the river Euphrates, which would roughly be in the Middle East near Iraq, over to Egypt. Everything from the Euphrates to Egypt, Scripture says, Nebuchadnezzar had control of. And no one could make decisions other than him. It was absolute domination. Now, Daniel and his friends were carried into captivity in 605 B.C. And notice what it says at the very end of this chapter, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's when Israel would return, and that was in 536. That means that Daniel was in captivity almost the entirety of his life, from when he was a teenager till he was almost 90 years old. His whole life lived in a foreign land. His whole life torn away from the place God had said he would bless his people in, torn away from the temple, torn away from everything God had established for his people. And yet Daniel understands that God is working his purposes out. O. Palmer Robertson says this, the message of the book of Daniel centers on the impact of the dispersal of God's people on the world's empires and the ultimate outcome of the chosen nation's dispersion. You see, what, what, what he's saying is Daniel would come to understand that what was happening to Israel, though it was a judgment from God, though it was a covenant curse on Israel for their rebellion, God was working out this other purpose, and their dispersal into these nations was going to be for God advancing his kingdom throughout the nations of the world. That's amazing. Daniel wouldn't see that all in his day. Daniel's faithfulness and fruitfulness was not dependent on him seeing with his eyes what God was doing, but he understood those things. He understood that there was a purpose to what God was doing. Now, let me say this. It has been noted that the book of Daniel is functionally an antiphonal uh, chorus to the chorus of Psalm 137, that great psalm of the captivity where that psalmist, whoever he was, said, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. There our captors required of us songs. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing the great hymns of the faith in such an oppressive foreign atmosphere? And the book of Daniel is really the answer to that question in Psalm 137. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And Daniel says, essentially, let me show you how it's done. Now, I want us to consider tonight just three things as we look at what Daniel needed to know in order to become and continue being faithful 
and fruitful in a foreign land. Number one, Daniel recognized God's sovereign purposes. Secondly, he saw God's faithfulness to his covenant. And third, he recognized the one to whom he belonged. He saw God's sovereignty, he understood God's faithfulness, and he reminded himself of the one to whom he belonged. Now, I want us to consider that as we look at this first chapter together. Daniel saw, or Daniel recognized God's sovereign purposes. Notice verse 2. After being told that Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem and besieged it, notice verse 2. Daniel writes, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Isn't that interesting? Daniel understands that it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's great power and might that brought them into captivity. Daniel understands that God was sovereign over their hard circumstance. He understood that this was a judgment of God. It was God doing what he had said, but he understands in a supreme way that there wasn't one thing that happened to him. And this is so important for us. There's not one thing that happens in our lives that God is not absolutely sovereign over. All of the good things, all of the bad things, all of the easy, enjoyable things, all the hard things. Daniel understood that the Lord had delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson says, Daniel learned as a child of God that you never look at the world from the perspective of the events happening in your life as isolated events. Let me read that again. Daniel learned as a child of God that you never look at the world from the perspective of the events happening in your life as isolated events. He didn't think this just happened by chance. He wasn't bemoaning the fact that this had happened even. He understood that God was sovereign over it. Now, Daniel would have known why it was happening and why God was sovereignly doing this, something we don't always know in our circumstances. He would have known because um, in 2 Kings chapter 20, Isaiah had prophesied to King Hezekiah because King Hezekiah had brought the king of Babylon into the temple. He had shown him all of the holy things, all of the utensils and the gold and the things that were to be consecrated to God, he basically brought him in and said, look at all the stuff you can take from us. And he had partied up with him. And so Isaiah had said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. The Lord predicted to Hezekiah, through Isaiah, exactly what was happening. So Daniel could understand God was sovereign because God is just carrying out what he had said he was going to do. Now, you know, we have all these experiences in life and we have all these circumstances, all of these trials, all of these challenges and frustrations And one way for us to to learn to be faithful is not to complain about them incessantly, is not to gripe about how hard they are, which we all tend to do, and is not to try to change our circumstances so that we don't have any of those. Daniel doesn't do any of that. Not one time. The number one thing we have to know is that God is sovereign over every single circumstance in our lives. So that if we recognize that, we don't play the victim card constantly and say, woe is me, I should have it better, because that's really just pride when we do that. That's us saying, I deserve better than this hardship. Actually, Scripture says we deserve hell. 
And so anything short of that is a kindness and a mercy. Even what Daniel and his friends go through, God is sovereignly providing for them. He is, Daniel has learned that God sovereignly will provide, protect, and, and, and put them to use. Even, and, and it, sometimes especially often in those trying situations that he puts us in. My wife and I were reflecting on the fact that Johnny Erickson Tata um, has been used by God for so long after she became a, a quadriplegic at the age of 17. She has more joy than almost any Christian I know. And yet her circumstances are vastly, vastly worse than any of our circumstances. And so Daniel understood the secret. He understood that God was working out his sovereign purposes. Now, I want us to secondly consider that Daniel was seeing God's faithfulness to his covenant. Now, oftentimes when we talk about God's faithfulness, we automatically go to those great promises of him restoring, protecting, keeping, being present with us, all those things we should do. But actually in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is cognizant that God is faithful to his covenant in sending the people into, into exile. It's not always comforting to recognize God's faithfulness, but Daniel recognizes it. Listen to this. Um, Ian Duguid says, to live faithfully in exile, we first need to know God's faithfulness. This is not altogether as comforting a truth as you may imagine, since the first aspect of God's faithfulness that we see in this chapter is God's faithfulness in judgment. Yet the recognition of that fate came from the hand of God as a faithful act of judgment, which was itself an encouragement to the exiles because God had not utterly destroyed his people. God was chastening them in covenant faithfulness, but they knew that God also had purposes and that even in the judgment, God was trying to humble his people because God had promised to restore them. Daniel was, in a sense, stepping back and he was looking at the panorama of God's work. Now, Daniel would have known well and would have meditated often on God's faithfulness to Israel and bondage to the Egyptians and the deliverance that God faithfully brought them through in the Red Sea and the 40 years that he sustained them in the wilderness and the many, many other acts of God's faithfulness in judgment and in salvation. And Daniel was content. He realized if I am going to be faithful, and if I am going to be fruitful, I need to realize that God is faithful in everything that he does. Because at the end of the day, the thing that keeps us from being faithful and fruitful so often is that we think somehow God has failed to be faithful to us. These situations are hard. I don't like them. God isn't faithful. We wouldn't ever verbalize it, but we think it in our words and actions. I don't like this circumstance. God's not faithful. I'm not serving him. Daniel, to the contrary, recognizes that if he's going to live faithful in exile, he needs to realize the faithfulness of God. Where did Daniel get that from? Well, certainly he would have gotten it from his parents. I mean, he and his three friends grew up in um, the tribe of Judah in homes that were linked to the kingly lineage. They would have known all of the scriptures. They would have meditated often on the covenant promises they would have meditated much on what God had said to David, that, that there would never be a son that would be lacking to sit on the throne forever. Think about that. That's the great covenant promise that God gave 
to, to Daniel's forefathers in that tribe, that, that David would always have a son that would always sit on that throne. Well, right now, there is no throne. There is no visible kingdom. There is no temple. There is no, there is no ruler in Judah. And yet, Daniel was taught by his parents, and he believed what he was taught. And I want to say this tonight. There is a word here for you if you're parents. Your children's faithfulness and fruitfulness, at least in part, will be dependent on how we teach them the truths of God's Word. Not absolutely. God has to change their hearts. God has to work in them. But, but there's a lesson here. Daniel and his friends didn't become faithful because they decided, hey, you know what? Let's do the right thing and start studying Scripture in exile. Their parents had diligently taught them these things. And they had carried them into exile with them. And here's what's marvelous. Nebuchadnezzar could take all the holy instruments, and more than that, he could take the best of the youth, but he couldn't take God's word out of Daniel and his friends' hearts. He could not take God's word out of their hearts. He could take the people out of the land. He could take everything he wanted to himself, but he could not strip what God had planted through those parents in the hearts of these young men. That's a very important lesson for us. If we're going to be faithful and if we're going to be fruitful in a foreign land and in trying circumstances, we need to cling fast to what the Lord has taught us faithfully. Daniel would have known about God's dealings in the many ways the Lord protected, provided for, and used his people in undesirable circumstances. By the way, that is sort of a melodic theme through Scripture, that the people who stand out as heroes of faithfulness and fruitfulness are not these legendary heroes. They are the real men and women who constantly find themselves in trying, difficult, and infelicitous circumstances, and yet God strengthens them to be faithful and fruitful in those. In, in almost every account in the Old Testament, that's where, that's where the, the spotlight is focused on because God wants us to learn to do the same in our own lives. So they knew the sovereign purposes of God. They saw God's faithfulness to his covenant. And then thirdly, and most significantly, I want us to consider they recognized the one to whom they belonged. They recognized the one to whom they belonged. Now, when I was a little boy, we sang a lot of little kid songs about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is really a tragedy, if I can put it that way. Because, because this chapter highlights for us that those were the pagan names that the Babylonians gave them, and that they, while they took those names, they would not dare forget their true identity and their God-given names that pointed to his ownership of them as his covenant people. Don't miss this. Notice, when they are introduced in this chapter, notice this, verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, I, I bet if I had asked you tonight before reading this, if you could name their original names, you wouldn't know them, at least not most of them. But all of us know their pagan names. And, and notice that after telling us that names were given to them there in verse 7, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, notice that every other time they are mentioned in this chapter, they are mentioned by their Hebrew names. Notice down in verse 19, the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, Daniel means 
God has judged. Mishael means who is like God. Hananiah means God is gracious. And Azariah means Jehovah has helped. Their names carried the rich symbolism that actually helped them remind themselves who they were and to whom they belonged. And that was so vital to their faithfulness and fruitfulness in these trying situations. Their their pagan names that they were given were Belteshazzar, which generally means the keeper of the treasures of Bel, one of the Babylonian gods. Hananiah became Shadrach, which was a, a shorthand for the Babylonian god Marduk. Mishael became Meshach, which was an allusion to the goddess of Venus. And Azariah, Abednego, which means servant of Nego, who was himself a pagan god. You see, what had happened was Nebuchadnezzar had tried to erase from their lives what identified them and marked them off as the people of God. One writer says this, these four young men resisted reprogramming. These four young men resisted reprogramming in a foreign land. They didn't refuse to take the names they were given, but, but by the repetition of their Hebrew names in this chapter, it becomes evident that they were reminding themselves. They were reminding themselves of who they really were, who God had set them apart to be, who they belonged to, and who God was. You know, it would help us often, while we try to live in two kingdoms, to remember that this is not our home. You think of how the apostle Paul says that. He says, here we have no continuing city. This is not our home. We seek a homeland. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus. We often ought to be reminding ourselves of our true identity, that that we don't belong to this world. We live in this world. Paul writes in those letters, and he says, to the saints, that's their identity as believers in Christ, to the saints who are in Ephesus. They happen to live in Ephesus. But their real identity is they're saints, they're holy ones, they're set apart. I think we get that principle here from the names. Now, also, we see that they recognize the one to whom they belong by preserving the biblical learning that God had given them. Um, One of the first things that happens to them when they are brought into this foreign land and subjected and taken from their families and put to the king's service is that he begins to try to re-educate them. He wants to educate them in the Babylonian ways, in the ways of the world, in the, the magic and the sorcery, and in all of the different aspects of the Babylonian uh, education and the pagan education. And, and while they subject themselves to that, it is said in this chapter that the Lord gave Daniel and his friends wisdom and knowledge and learning in all literature, that it was from the Lord that the real wisdom and knowledge they needed came. They recognized, and this is very important, they recognized that we can be faithful and we can be fruitful if we hold fast to what God has given us. Um, Do Good, again, says, the four young men preserve biblical knowledge and perspective in the midst of a thoroughly pagan education system. And that's important for us. You know, it's very interesting. What 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 does Nebuchadnezzar go for? He doesn't go for the elders of Israel. He doesn't go for the statesmen in Israel. He doesn't go for the political leaders who had been leading. He went for the youth. Because at the end of the day, the evil one 
constantly wants to go for the youth because if he can get the youth, he cuts off the next generation that will be faithful and fruitful. Now, you don't hear me say this a lot, but I'm going to say it tonight. I don't care where you educate your children, but you are commanded to teach them Christian theism. And you are commanded to teach them that God is sovereign over all things. And you are commanded to teach them to see everything through the lens of Scripture. Because when we fail to do that, we are failing our children, and we are essentially setting them up so that they will not be faithful or fruitful in a foreign land. Now, that can come in lots of different forms. And sometimes those forms take more work than other work. Um, and I'm not, I'm not vying for a certain educational system. But God commands us to be faithful. And these four men, they held on, and they resisted being deprogrammed by the education in that pagan land. Now, there's one more thing that is so marvelous in this chapter, and the, the, the latter part of it is here, and that is that, that um, Daniel and his friends, were told, refused to be defiled with the king's meat and wine. Now, it's not because there's anything wrong with meat and wine. And I want to say this tonight. It's taken me 22 years to come to a settled position on what's happening here. There's nothing wrong with meat and wine. God commanded his people to eat their meat and drink their wine before him in Deuteronomy. Those are blessings from God. There's nothing, there's nothing innately corrupt about this. And I don't think that these were unkosher things that would have defiled the dietary laws in Israel. So you have two options. One of those options is that Daniel and his friends only want to eat produce from the ground because they want to recognize that God is their sustainer and not Nebuchadnezzar. That they want those things that come immediately from the hand of God and not from Nebuchadnezzar. The other possibility, and I think more likely, is that these delicacies, this meat and this wine, were offered by pagan priests to the pagan gods and set apart for that, and Daniel and his friends refused to give in to that. Now, there's, there's this really interesting thing in this chapter. And I said this a few weeks ago. Daniel is not this high-handed, defiant, bullhorn, social media keyboard warrior. Listen, y'all, stop listening to those people, please. That's not biblical faithfulness. Anybody can, can yell about truth real loud and that's right, I'm standing against the government. Daniel doesn't do that. He takes the name. He takes the name Belteshazzar. He serves as an official in a pagan king's court. He humbles himself and he pleads that the eunuch and the commander over them would be merciful, and he humbly petitions him to allow him not to be defiled with these things. He shows respect. This is a big principle that we need to learn. Your faithfulness is not dependent on how loud you defy governments. Your faithfulness is how you maneuver yourself before God in the midst of those very difficult circumstances and weigh what are those things that we can submit to in the culture around us and what are those things that we need to refuse to submit to. Daniel shows us great discernment in this chapter. And then he finds favor. And the marvelous thing, the mar marvelous thing is that as Daniel recognizes God's sovereign purposes 
as he recognizes God's faithfulness, and as he recognizes and holds fast to his identity with his friends as a member of God's covenant people who have been set apart by God, who are to worship and serve only the true and living God. And as all of those pieces come together, God's blessings abound and make Daniel fruitful. Isn't that amazing? Daniel does those three things, and God gives him favor more than with all the other people. By the way, eating vegetables usually isn't going to make you look better. It'll make you feel better, but, but not usually look better. They even look better. Um, that's not normal, y'all. But, but God's mercy to Daniel and God's faithfulness in blessing Daniel and his friends, God advancing them, God posturing them and putting them where he wants them. Daniel can't see everything that we know is going to happen. He can't see the end from the beginning, but he can see those three things, and he can commit himself to those things. And in doing so, he learns that God is supremely merciful, and God will sustain him, protect him, provide for him, and put him to use. Um, you know, we've already heard this evening that Daniel belonged to the tribe of Judah, I've told you at other times that Daniel is very clearly a type of Christ. You have in the, the lion's den that he, he goes in and the stone is rolled over and the seal is put there and, and he's brought out the next day. That's a picture of Christ's death and resurrection, just like Jonah going into the belly of the fish, three days, three nights, and he comes out, death and resurrection. Um, and yet Daniel here in chapter one is a type of Christ because Jesus was in a much more hostile foreign land than Daniel was ever in. Jesus was exiled from heaven and was sent to live in exile in a world that hated him, that despised him, that sought to destroy him, and that ultimately crucified him and rejected him. And yet he held on to the truth about his father's sovereignty, his father's faithfulness, and his own identity as the eternal son to whom the promises of God had been given. The God who named him Jesus and said, because he will save his people from their sins. Listen to this. This is marvelous. Dugood again says this, Jesus Christ came voluntarily into this world with all of its pains and trials. He endured far greater temptations and sufferings than Daniel did or than we ever will. Yet he remained entirely faithful and pure until the end. Without spot or blameless, he grants the perfection of his obedience to all who trust him by faith. This is, this is it. The message of Daniel is not first and foremost, dare to be a Daniel. We are called to follow his example. The message of Daniel is we are to rest in the one who was supremely faithful and fruitful and the one who by his perfect sinless life and his atoning sacrificial death on the cross makes us faithful and fruitful, even and oftentimes when we're not faithful and when we haven't been fruitful and when we go to him in those trying situations and instead of saying, Lord, if you would just change this, I will be faithful and I will be fruitful. We go and we say, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. Lord, make me faithful and make me fruitful where you have put me because you are sovereign, you are faithful, and I belong to you. And because of the Lord Jesus, God has promised to strengthen us and to do that for us. I hope that that'll be an encouragement to you. You know, we don't know 
what the days ahead hold for us. We have no idea. We talk about AI and gene coding and Neuralink and all the weird stuff going on. We talk about China and Russia and all these axes of evil. And we don't know what's going to happen, but we can be confident. Whatever happens, our being an American is not what makes us faithful and fruitful. Our having constitutional freedoms is not what makes us faithful and fruitful. Us being able to avoid hardship because we don't like it is not what's going to make us faithful and fruitful. Knowing that God is sovereign, that God is faithful, and that we belong to him, that Christ has died for us and has purchased us, is what's going to make us faithful and fruitful in a foreign land. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this precious book. We thank you for these real-time lessons that you have breathed out in it to strengthen us in faith, to encourage us in our pilgrimage here in this foreign land in which we are ever in danger of compromise, in which we are ever in danger of buckling under the difficulties and the trials. Lord, we acknowledge that we have often just wanted to change our circumstances or prevent change from happening. But we recognize, our God, that you are able, that you are sovereign, that you are faithful, that we belong to you, body and soul, in life and in death, and that you are able to make us faithful and fruitful wherever you plan us in whatever situations you bring into our life. And so, Lord, would you please do this? Would you do it by fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at your right hand. So, Lord, would you do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.